Hello, everyone. Welcome to Word with Dave Clay. Oh, where to begin? I am one of those three strikes sort of persons. I know that's a sports analogy. It's kind of cliche. Could even be construed as a bit sexist. I don't know. Something a guy would say. But I think it's appropriate. <laughs> it seems to have served me well over the years. Strike one. I tell somebody to <laughs> take care of something for me. Or they're gonna tell me, or they tell me they're gonna take care of something for me. And I trust them, I believe them. And they don't do it. Strike two. After having discussed it with the person, heard all the reasons why they didn't do it, excuses maybe, possibly some justifiably so, justifiable, why they wouldn't be able to do what they either told me they were going to do or maybe even more so uh, was on the verge of promising me, assuring me that it would be done. Strike two. I trust them again. And, as you might expect, at least for the sake of today's podcast and the direction we're going, uh, they didn't do it a second time. And, of course, I'm no fool, (laughs) right? I'll trust you again. But you have to promise me you're going to do it. And so I will say things like, well, you did this once before. You gave me all the reasons, excuses, why you couldn't do it. Um, I trusted you again, and you've done it again. And you promised me you weren't going to, or you were going to, or whatever it might be. Now, I should just end there, right? But it's not a two strikes you're out. It's a three strikes you're out. So with much, I guess, trepidation, maybe a bit of time, certainly a lot of forgiveness, letting go, wanting to believe, exercising that belief, I'd do it again. Yes, yes, I'll do that for you. Yes, I promise you I won't do that. I promise. You can trust me. I know those two previous times I told you that, but you know, just so much. And then some of that I'll own on myself. I I did it wrong. I'm so sorry. Just give me one more chance. Okay, I agree. I'll give you one more chance, knowing full well where this is going to end. And in that way, I'm not disappointed. Now, not every time does it turn out that way. By the way, that's strike three, and it's over. I don't hate the person. I don't hate on the person. I don't go around telling everybody what a liar, cheat, or thief that person might be. It's not my business. Uh, I guess if I saw somebody about to be sort of fleeced, or taken advantage of, I might tell them, or I might be some somewhat warning if it was a large investment. But for the most part, I believe people have to learn for themselves, and that's why there's laws, and I'm not the police. But if I see somebody about to be hurt, I will be considerate of that fact. But at the same time, after you've done that, I'm not going to trust you again. Period. You can't convince me. Or if you're going to convince me, it's unimaginable at this moment, as we're discussing this, what that might look like. I just think it's wisdom. And, once again, serve me well. But at the same time, what does that sound like? Oh, I promise you, I'll do this thing. I won't let you down. I won't lie to you. Just, to, just trust me. Be agreeable on this. You can trust me. 
<laughs> besides maybe a strong sales pitch, which I've been subject to that on a few occasions as well. Once you get locked in, by the way, put some money on the table, it's hard to get out. That should probably be stated. But once that investment's made, whether it's just to trust the person initially or maybe put a little bit more into it, maybe the whole promise has something to do with an investment of more than just your goodwill or your faith or your trust. Maybe there's a financial, again, mention that, a financial aspect to it. Maybe there's literal physical or emotional or psychological abuse that could come along with that. And to the extent or degree that some of it is harmless, obviously some of it isn't. And once again, that would probably be the primary judgment as to whether or not I would warn anybody. If I saw imminent danger to self or others, and then from that, kind of work your way outward. But I do think most people, unfortunately, have to learn the lesson the hard way. Because these individuals that might do such things, who all of this possibly sounds like, besides salespeople, uh, are really good at it. And they'll just move on to the next person, and even so, they can keep some people coming back more than three strikes. Uh, I, I don't know how many or how much, but some people seem so unwise, should it be called foolish, to just keep going back, knowing full well it's not going to work. Niccolo Machiavelli, Machiavelli, I believe is the proper pronunciation, Italian which has nothing to do with Italians, just stating a fact. 15th century, also known as the Renaissance. Machiavellianism, named after, purportedly so, Niccolo Machiavelli, 15th century Renaissance. <laughs> it's that person who is cunning, deceptive, strategic, even so justifiably will not only give up excuses, but will, in essence, to get what they think is right or what they want, not just out of negligence, but actually with some intention to selfishly indulge themselves, serve themselves, will manipulate you, will lie to you, will cheat, will steal. The problem is, though, that at some point, even for them, when do they run out of victims? And when does the big world become such a small world that they have to at least find either new victims or somehow convince you that they've changed. And even for the sake of actually getting the keys to the house <laughs> or, or your money, they may have to persist for a while and you have to at least perceive them to be quite the contrary. You have to see them as trustworthy, honest, with integrity. You have to be agreeable. Unless they just murder you take what they want, and might even do that if laws weren't sufficient, again, to keep them in check. Now, I don't know if Niccolo Machiavelli, Machiavelli was such that, but he's kind of been then, or his legacy, his name, has kind of been then associated with this type of person. And unfortunately, even as you speak to that, Machiavelli was a bit of an ambassador slash politician and actually wrote some books on the entire principle that it is okay, a book, it is okay justifiably for an end to lie, cheat, and steal. And even 
then for the sake of accuracy, the Oxford Languages Dictionary defines Machiavellian as cunning, scheming, and unscrupulous, especially in politics. And as much similarly for the sake of accuracy, Machiavelli's primary work, at least what he's sort of renowned for, that would then come back to this description of this, what better to call it than evil, is called The Prince. Now, I've already placed Machiavelli in historical context to be during the Renaissance. And I'm not necessarily a cultural historian. I don't know that it's of great interest to be necessarily history. I am a person who really appreciates, though, understanding how we've gotten to where we are from whence we came. And this whole idea of Machiavellianism or Machiavellianism and going back to the 15th century Renaissance, Niccolo Machiavelli, it really in many ways seems to me to be the beginning of modern politics. <laughs> it was a time of great social change, the Renaissance. And old ways of doing things were being replaced with radically new ways. And supposing that Machiavelli has got a bit of a bad rap, where's the three-strike rule? <laughs> I might even trust his motives to have not been so nefarious or evil. To get that kind of change from that many people at once or to at least appreciate what the opportunity would be to bring that much dissent and chaos, social dissent, chaos, world order, into proper alignment, would probably take somebody who was pretty agreeable, or at least appeared to be friendly, so that you would be agreeable, that the masses would be agreeable. Um, present themselves in such a way that they would noticeably so garner your trust. A person for their times. And I think Machiavelli, and I've not read the book, should say that, read the reviews, might have even been just capturing sociological data as a social scientist, although I don't know that he is necessarily renowned for that, but I'll give him that. It was just an observation. But if indeed this was an observation, and many have accused him of not only noting but promoting <laughs> how to manipulate the masses, and as much then the definition seemingly goes back to not necessarily sales or salesmen, although Arguably so, you might accuse most politicians of being salespeople. It has all of this dark cloud of politics. I say dark cloud because politics itself should not be dark, but it's been so insidiously connected with a lot of lying, cheating, and stealing, as I would call it. Machiavelli would have probably called it maybe something different. The definition I read to you earlier described it differently. But for the sake of just my own translation, it keeps me honest on the podcast. And you, knowing exactly what I mean, lying, cheating, and stealing seem to be appropriate descriptions, adjectives to describe, or acts as with that descriptively, characterologically, personality-wise. Which really then brings up another angle on all of this. Personalities don't change. Or do they? We're going to read an article from Psychology Today, which should be of no surprise, except that I've not gotten to it any sooner in the podcast, August of 2022. 
entitled, A Surprising Way to Diminish Darkness. For those high and dark triad traits, fulfilling a desire to become more agreeable could have an unexpected side effect. This is by Grant H. Brenner, M.D. But before, <laughs> before I read that, though, I want to go back to this concept of great social change or disorder. The Renaissance, Machiavelli. Because it does seem as if a lot of those type of factors, and that certainly isn't an exhaustive list, and the podcast today is not to necessarily make any case. Just again, an observation. But it seems like much of that is going on presently in our imminent or immediate context of time and space. And with that, would we not then, in some positive sort of dimension, be appreciative that Niccolo Machiavelli maybe told us about that in some manner or means or way? That maybe we could, again, learn from the past. <laughs> I'm not suggesting you go out and get his book, The Prince. But I am suggesting, though, that he at least in some way, maybe lesser, maybe greater, consider this. And not only in some societal sort of context or cultural or even multicultural <laughs> world order sort of frame of reference, somebody might be susceptible to somebody stepping up and in that way lying, cheating, stealing, deception, <laughs> three strikes you're out kind of context. We're looking for help. We're looking for order. We're looking for someone to bring order. We're looking for someone to establish some semblance of what we should be and what we are and what's right and what's wrong and any of those things that help us all as humans to function most adaptively. Order in the chaos. We may be susceptible to being agreeable. And you may even employ the three strikes you're out. But by the time you get to the third strike, there might be some pretty significant sort of consequences that goes along with your investments. And that the promises made weren't kept. Worse than that, there was an intention to fleece you, to take advantage of your instability socially. Our world's instability, disorder. Manipulate even your need. Maybe even some might accuse, and I'm not sure this is in the book, the prince, or at least the prototype as captured by Niccolo. But maybe they create the disorder so that they then might step in. Maybe they separate you from those touchstone sorts of things, cultural, sociologically, psychologically, that represents your stability. Crack the foundation, break the foundation, intentioned to create disorder, just so they can. Fill the void. Meet the need. Now, lest this should be turning a bit too political, I'm going to go to the article in Psychology Today, or at least too suggestive that, that there's, again, once more, nefarious elements politically going on, and maybe it's some concerted effort. I'm going to offer up the case of abuse. And there's many forms of that. Most, though, have some element of grooming. Many not only forms of that, but ways people become trapped or ensnared in that. It all begins with somebody teaching somebody that by doing that to them. And the person in their only way that they could to survive it, make some sense of it. Obviously, it's going to be very subjective. But if you're on the short end of the stick, the losing side of that proposition, if you're the victim... 
it affects your identity and who you believe yourself to be. And though you may be a bit disagreeable and contentious yourself, maybe you are a little contrary. Maybe you're a, well, sort of an agitator from the victim side of it and going to fight back every turn. Eventually, in the end though, if you can't see it for everything it is, they're very good at this. Either corporately or individually make the corporate, made corporate, at knowing where your weakness is. Knowing what you want. And it's usually primary drive stuff. It's food. It's shelter. It's all the things that make us feel safe. Law, order, neighbors. It's your neighbor, your friend, or your enemy. Paranoia inspired. But when I say that too as an example, lest again this sound way too out there. Particularly with sexual offenders, that's exactly what they do. They're your best friend. You can trust them. And if you're a child looking for a best friend, if the abuse has come from someone close to you, neighbor, somebody at school, friend, immediate or extended family member even, somebody in some trusted position, church, institutionally so, mentor, someone prominent in the community, someone with much influence and respect. At least on the surface, you were put in a position of, trust me, I care for you. And even then, gets back to how many opportunities before you're ensnared in that? How much of yourself do you give away in your need for affirmation, validation, in your need for love, in your need for support, in your need for even maybe basic needs to be met? And again, I'm not saying that sexual abuse is all abuse. And actually what I am about to say is that they tend to cross over physical, emotional, sexual, they kind of come together at some level or there's always a great risk that you're going to physically coerce somebody as much as you're going to emotionally blackmail that person, brainwash that person, degrade that person, steal their identity, their sense of self, so that you could go on sexually abusing them or you could look at sexual abuse as the great offense of personal intimacy and once that's been broken and you know somebody can violate you in that sort of way it just renders you open to any of the other forms insidiously so they're connected and even in your contention and your anger the way we protect ourselves from that is when we can't figure it out and when we really do need love, support, and when we only know through learning, socialization, modeling, somebody's done it to you, particularly as you were young, that's where you go to. That's who you go to for your love and support. Because you don't know better. And if it's generational, which we know, much abuse characterologically, characteristically, characterologically in the individual, but also characteristically from one generation to the next is transmitted. I don't know that it's genetic, but it's insidious again. It's within that small intimate environment of parent-child, home. And if it's not the parent, then whomever has access to that intimate world of a child. Who by, I suppose, operationally, by definition, isn't quite ready yet to engage the harsher elements. But if you give them the keys to your house, as I said earlier. If you trust them to have open access to your heart, your soul, your mind, your body. Even so, your spirit. You've let evil in your house. And they're going to do what they do in that personality sort of way. And with that, it's very difficult 
to change the personality. A surprising way to diminish darkness, Psychology Today, Grant H. Brenner, MD, for those high and dark triad traits, fulfilling a desire to become more agreeable could have an unexpected side effect. People high in the dark triad of narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism rarely want to become less antisocial. Yet they often still wish to change their personality to become more agreeable, new research finds. And actually, doing so could have the unintended consequence of making their disposition less dark. At least in appearances. Me adding that. In the study published in the Journal of Personality, nearly 500 participants were followed for 16 weeks. At the outset, they completed measures of big five and dark triad traits and reported whether they want to change in each category. Then they underwent a personality change intervention designed to target their specific goals. Each week, participants were presented with behavioral challenges designed to better align their behavior with their desired traits. In past research, the successful completion of these challenges predicted measurable personality change over time. Most participants wanted to change at least one big five trait, but unsurprisingly, People high and dark triad traits showed little interest in decreasing those qualities despite their well-known consequences. In fact, those who were high in Machiavellianism reported a desire to become even more Machiavellian. Yet participants who were high in any dark triad trait were likely to seek to increase agreeableness perhaps because it superficially aligns with their desire to take advantage of others. Individuals who successfully completed the intervention tended to see significant boosts in agreeableness. Surprisingly, this success also came with measurable reductions in Machiavellianism, psychopathy, and narcissism, suggesting that even in the absence of conscious motivation, dark triad individuals may have the ability to become less antisocial via their desire to become more agreeable. Because the intervention lasted just a few months, it's not clear how long the changes will remain, says author Nathan Hudson of Southern Methodist University. But at the very least, he notes, the study suggests that even narcissists and psychopaths may willingly participate in an intervention that promises greater agreeableness, potentially reaping benefits like improved functioning and healthier relationships along the way. Again, a surprising way to diminish darkness for those high and dark triad traits fulfilling a desire to become more agreeable could have an unexpected side effect by Grant H. Brenner, M.D. So my first, first thought, you actually have heard my first thought thoughts on this, but to go back to immediately reading this article, my first thought is, sure, it's all transactional. And what does that mean? It's reciprocal to the extent or degree that they have to have a victim. If you remove the victim, then they've got to find a victim. You remove access to the victim, it's hard for them to, difficult for them to perpetrate these individuals, high in Machiavellianism, as well as the dark triad, or as much the dark triad. Now, it's a big world, and certainly news travels faster than it ever has before, but maybe not fast enough, and maybe you're not really even with all the personal details that's out there in social media that can be communicated in an instant 
on platforms such as Facebook, etc., etc. Nonetheless, because this is done in such an intimate sort of way and with these elements of lying, cheating, and stealing in order to engage your agreeableness as a victim so that they might victimize you and certainly greater risk of victimizing those who have been previously victimized and exploited and taken advantage of in such measure or fashion. So much so that by the time you get to the first strike, you may be so deep into it, have given your soul away or material resource with that away to the extent that it's really hard to extract yourself without personal cost. But you know, you have to, that's relative itself. You, you kind of have to look at that and say, well, if it's going to kill you, then what price is your life worth? <laughs> what are you going to sell your soul for, so to speak? But in the transactional sort of dimensions of that, they have to have somebody there that is willing to at least participate in some reciprocal dimension aspect to reel them in, to get them close. But once they've reeled them in, or if it's more of a cultural phenomenon, much like the Renaissance with much social disorder and rather than just individual by individual in some mass hysteria, mass brainwashing sort of dimension or way, they insert themselves with just enough charisma, just enough agreeable, at least prompting agreeableness in your part, but appearances of being agreeable, a likable sort of person, an honest sort of person. They'll tell enough truth and probably can sustain that sufficient to engage hopefully in mass, critical mass, a point where they can then begin to go the opposite direction. And once they're there, whether it's just sheer opportunity or again within the context of grooming or vice versa, grooming or within a context of even sheer opportunity, they're going to show what they really are. Especially if they feel themselves somewhat confident and secure. But once it's over with abuse, any abuse, again, emotional, physical, sexual, they can't kill you or they won't have a victim. They can't kill you physically or even psychologically because they'll have to at least try to make up some, offer up excuses, justifications for why they did it or you're not going to participate. And should you be, again, a contrarian or a renegade or somebody who is uh, oppositional, to their desires or wants on the front end, you still can easily be fooled. But those are the ones that you usually want to dispense with, is anybody who has figured out the gig, <laughs> or the jig, and the jig's up, and knows what they're doing in that sort of way, because you're not going to. Nothing is worth going back. <laughs> You've gotten to the third strike. And maybe so, you're not going to hate, or you will hate on them. It's not that you won't hate on them, as I said earlier. Sometimes I can let that just pass because nobody's going to get hurt and people have to learn and maybe they'll change. You know, it's that marginal thing. It's some ambivalence on my part. I'm not the judge. But when you've been hurt to that extent or degree, you're going to tell everybody you can. You're going to warn everybody that you can before it's too late. And if you have any personality left, sense of self, self-worth, self-esteem, even if it is compromised by all of this, even if it is still somewhat fragile, even if it still believes it's going to, you, you, it all is going to end in failure. It's all going to go down in failure. You may end up being failing in doing it. You may be willing to say, who cares? I'm going to take this thing on head first, straight on. I'm going to run into battle knowing the enemy has got more weaponry. <clears throat> Excuse me. Has there multiple so beads on me and I'm a dead man walking as used to be the term 
or phrase. Because some things, I suppose, are willing to fight for at that level. But they're not going to want to keep you around. You are a problem to them. Because you're saying things, you're speaking of things solidly so, empirically so, experientially so, demonstrably so, proved, done your research, evidence-based, rational, reasoned, empirically in the hypothetical, best of hypothetical deductive models, science-based research models, this is not good. <laughs> Humans don't function well in those type of regimes. And that's why Niccolo <laughs> Machiavelli has gotten so much criticism because he seems to, in a minimum an observation, maybe with intent, armed, highlighted, profiled victims or how to victimize people and get away with it. Just enough, yes, to sort of neutralize your no. Just enough empathy, at least what appears to be empathy of perspective taking, though hardly genuinely a matter of inserting your feelings in another person or feelings into another person's situation. Hallmark again of abuse generally or sexual abuse specifically. Lack of empathy for the victim. And with that, if there is a perspective or if it's calculated, it's all self-centered. Once more, you could make the case that came because they were abused in the same way and opted to just make it about themselves and never trust another person, become cold-hearted, as is described, be the perpetrator rather than the victim. But even then, to get away with that, you have to be socially appropriate to get in amongst the sheep, <laughs> to get into the house, to earn the trust, to have access to the innermost parts of any human being as with intimacy, even if it's physical, outward sort of intimacy, personal space and social dimension that's violated, and as I said earlier, that may open the door to more emotional violation. But some people can keep you out. Once you've punched them, they're either going to punch back or they're not going to hang out with you. Once you've stolen from them, it may not take three strikes. They're not going to give you what their treasures, the most, what's most valuable or invaluable to them. You can't put a value on it because it's so important. So worth something. Self-esteem. Confidence. Optimism. Hope. Belief. So transactional, only as long as they can get away with it. Using their powers, so to speak, Dark triad traits. So that they might otherwise be able to actually have access at you. The American Psychiatric Association, who publishes the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, lumps narcissism, psychopathy, Psychopathy, maybe is a way to pronounce that. Antisocial personality with histrionic personality and borderline personality and calls it cluster B. Now, I don't know that that specif specifically speaks to the big five or speaks to specifically the dark triad because... I don't believe that that's premised necessarily in such a direct way upon the data that the American Psychiatric Association has put together and then in their Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. But I do believe that they're speaking to the same thing. 
We've already addressed narcissism, uh, at least the article did in today's podcast. And as much, again, that's anything, it's all about ego, about pride, about feeding ego, about making the narcissist the best at everything. And with that, how difficult it is for them to be with someone else who's better or who might represent a threat to their feelings of confidence and insecurity, presuming such low self-esteem that all this becomes superficially a veneer that they put on. But we still might presume a bit of a conscience, a social conscience, a concern, empathy, perspective-taking of another individual, capability, that is, in that individual. Though, again, by the time you get there, it has to be according to the narcissistic terms. Borderline personality would be, in a quintessential way, possibly the victim, somebody who has had their identity, their security, their self-esteem, their bodily integrity, has gone through elements of abuse, possibly all three, most likely because they all overlap, physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, psychological abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, some combination of all of those. But borderline personality is a very broken individual who has ultimately no ego integrity. If narcissism is all about ego, I'm not saying narcissists have any greater ego integrity. They just know how to put the veneer on, superficially appear that way. Borderlines do not. There is equally compromised, or maybe more so, as with narcissism and borderline when it comes to ego integrity and self-esteem and probably, again, subject, once more, subject to some of the same dimensions of abuse. Now, this article did not mention histrionic personality. And once more, they're not necessarily, this article is not necessarily tied to the research of the American Psychiatric Association and the DSM, Diagnostic Statistical Manual. But a histrionic personality is very much an attention-seeking individual, which, again, su- suggests brokenness at a very core level. But they can be very theatrical and very dramatic. And they can be really good actors. <laughs> because most really good actors have some dimension of histrionic, drama-related. And most good actors, at least to get into acting, have some found some reason, some benefit in making themselves the center of attention. Not saying it's always positive attention, it can be negative attention. It could be as much creating a mess as it is fixing a mess. But they're very good at presentation, accentuated, dramatic presentation. And lastly, as with the APA DSM, there is psychopathy or antisocial personality, which is just really criminal. Lying, (laughs) cheating, and stealing. So what does all this have to do with Machiavellianism? It's exactly what Niccolo Machiavelli, at least my best understanding, of what he's renowned for. He pointed it out. Actually, what he pointed out was possibly one of the best profiles, though it was not intentioned as such, of abuse, perpetrators and victims. And with that, whether it's organic, naturally inspired trauma, disorder, chaos, individually, poverty, Death, dying, illness, disease, horrible quality of life, or (laughs) contrived. It has the same effect. You do this to enough individuals who make up a population, who then make up a global population, regional, cultural, regional, global population, and we're going to be primed if that individual can surface, present him or herself, 
And if you're into gender pro pronoun issues or concerns, so it'd be equitable, whatever their preference would be. I don't know that it's necessarily a male or female sort of trait. But it is all of these things put together. That's what Machiavellianism is. That's what Machiavelli presented. That's why we turn this toward political, even in definition, sort of element or elements. Because it does represent an abusive dimension or aspect. And with that, it always has the end of lying, cheating, stealing for personal gain. <laughs> Why? Because all of it originates, all of these traits, whether you measure it in terms of the dark triad, the big five, cluster B, it's what the American Psychiatric Association Diagnostic Statistical Manual defines it, cluster B, all of these particularly personality disorders, they're characterologically defining of the individual, which means it is personality, which is then somewhat enduring, which is then very resistant to change, even with great intention and directed strategic effort. It's hard, very difficult to make those changes. And particularly with such lying, cheating, and stealing as the element, and the need to at least have your trust enough they may tell you anything you want to hear for the sake of at least having somebody there that they can exploit to make themselves feel better, feel adequate, feel strong, feel superior, feel dominant, feel, I don't know, totalitarianism, um, whatever you call it. Control everything. These individuals want to not only control everything, but they have discovered how to manipulate the human condition or need for affection, physical needs, emotional needs, primary drives, met, affirmation, validation, life. They manipulate all those essentials necessary to life, not only quantity, but as you take it a little further away from that baseline of quantity, survival, quality of life issues. They want to control everything, if not only for themselves, any of those material resources, but you have to be servant to their need. You're a slave to their need. And it's universal. It knows, <laughs> again, doesn't know gender. It doesn't know race. It's just evil. But it is a legacy of somebody evil having done this. And generationally, one generation and the next, kind of taking even more definitive shape and form. And if our society individuals fall prey to that, our communities, our cultures fall prey to that, our regional sort of populations fall prey to that, our global population falls prey to that, then if anybody can rise out of all of that chaos and appear to provide some sense of order, direction, even if it's lying to you. I promise you, I'm going to do this. I, I'm sorry if I didn't do this. I, it was a mistake. I, I got all caught up in, I'm only human. <laughs> or so-and-so did this, and that's why I couldn't do that. But if you get to the third strike, wake up. They're probably not what they appear to be. Now, the article would take the angle, Brenner, that maybe there's some hope. And maybe you can change them in some ways. I don't think that's true. Brenner did say that one of the shortcomings, possibly, of the research or the data was that it was for a short period of time. But the only thing that I have found, either empirically, personal experience, empirically, research, evidence-based studies, the only thing that works is to turn them over to some sort of authority, 
or something that has the authority to keep them in check. Whether it's a registry of sexual offenders or it's probation, um, parole, uh, maybe even just staying in prison. And in that sense, there's not going to be the likelihood of victimization. I suppose in prison there's always going to be somebody you can victimize. And even out on the streets it still happens. But maybe the most imminent for them threat in return with this transactional, within a transactional context, nature, reciprocal nature is, you're going to go to jail. We're going to lock you up. Maybe even so with murder, some still believe in the death penalty. I'm not advocating that. I'm not saying that that is the end of it all or the best way to manage that. I'm just saying that's probably one of the things, or at least from some thought like this, is how we've gotten to that as one of the things that seems to work. But even then it doesn't work. Murderers still commit murder even though they know they're subject to the death penalty. So I don't know that there is going to be hope to change the personality I do believe that maybe if there's something that we can hope for, it would be our best efforts to keep it in check. But the best way that I know to keep something like that in check is to starve it of oxygen, if it needs oxygen to live. Don't be a victim. Recognize, understand what being victimized has done to you. Understand that the majority of psychological difficulties has come from trauma early in childhood, early in the developmental course. It, it can be post-traumatic in the sense of some acute situation circumstance, but even so, those would be far fewer than, unfortunately, the insidious nature of abusive relationships, primary relationships between caretakers and children. But knowing full well that that arrests your development, not the physiology of your development, because your brain continues to develop. The capability and the capacity to understand is there for those who otherwise don't and those who do chronologically, biologically, somewhat equal or on par in terms of physical, emotional, psychological development, operationally so primary, secondary sort of operations. But what's missing is, is those that have been victimized can't face it. It scares them too much. They run from it rather than toward it. We should be advocating for victims. We should be putting all of our research and resource as research as resource and other resources into Understanding the best way to make a person strong and not to let foxes in the hen house. Not to give liars, cheats, and thieves the keys to the kingdom. <laughs> our kingdom, our home, our house. To turn over our primary drives to somebody that, oh, we'll take care of you. Don't worry. Knowing full well. That as one of the primary obstacles to really benevolence is selfishness. Our concern for others is not, we're all born selfish. But if you teach somebody as in the still the formative years of personality, childhood years, to be gracious and kind and respectful and encouraging of others, not to brainwash them, into misgotten thoughts and ideas, but to really just teach them how to test that for themselves and to rely upon precedent, history, what we've learned from the past, the generals, as, as in generalities, as well as those things that can be generalized to other situations, even more specific, from the general to the specific. Then let them... Allow them to confirm the data, the paradigm that they're taught, but empower them to do so. Do not brainwash them. Do not tell them. Do not show them 
things that otherwise don't line up. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that are harmful to self or others until they're old enough really to make those decisions. Everybody's going to have a particular way of looking at life and parents are going to do that or whoever's responsible to socialize the child. We just want to make sure that we have, again, the best of models. That's what psychology, psychological counseling is supposed to do. Communicate in a tangible, applicable way what we know to be the highest order of human functioning. We call it adaptive functioning. Not only psychologically, but sociologically. And if a person recognizes they're not functioning at that highest of order, they know the hallmarks of that, all those diseases and disorders in the APA, including depression and anxiety and social maladapting or maladjustment, be the better word, but maladaptation. Hurting people, hurting yourself, harming your culture and society, making it unsafe for everyone. Not meeting each other's needs in the best way possible, even if it does require a bit of sacrifice to do that benevolently, benevolently, graciously, desiring to give it to help others. Charitably, in some loving sort of manner or fashion, as we might have called it or maybe still call it, charity, love. But that's what we try to do. And should you, at some point, have a chance to see it for what it is, maybe you're at the third strike period, maybe you're stuck and you can't get out, but you know there's a part of your conscience that's still alive that tells you this, there's something better, this isn't right, reach out. If you can't reach out to a professional, reach out to somebody that you can trust. Let them know you need some help and they can be there to support you while you get the help you need. Is it always professional? No, it can be just nice, kind, loving people. But that's why we're here. We fill in, we have a niche, we have a place in helping. And should something we offer be exactly what you need, I would hope that a podcast like this would encourage you. But in closing, let me just say this. If you don't feel it so, don't know it so in such an individual way, but you can see it happening all around you, and you still have a voice, speak out and stop it. If you still have a vote, cast it. We don't want to go down that road once you get into that. Once it becomes cultural, community cultural, regional, global, the masses, we're going to really have a hard time changing it. I, I, I do believe even then it'll change, but usually it changes because we've had our fill of it. We've destroyed everything, including ourselves, and maybe out of that somebody wakes up one day and says, why did we do all this? How did we get here? Let's just do everything we can before we get here or get there or we get to that place of that get here sort of moment. That's why I do the podcasts. I want to inform you. I want to educate you. I want to share a perspective. I want to let you know as best as I see it and work with it on a daily basis. I hope I enter into conversation with you on the podcast. Present with credibility and some degree of trust. But check me out. Look it up for yourself. I try to give you at least the basis of the talking points. Go do the research yourself. Do a deep dive. It won't hurt you. You may not have the time. That's why I do the podcast. But if you're interested, check it out. And if for whatever reason you have a contrary or differing opinion, let me know. I want to know. But at the same time, (laughs) if I do serve any purpose, it would be at least to draw your awareness. Offer an insight. Something from my experience that might be useful to you. 
And who knows, maybe I could help you forego having to come in and speak to somebody because though I would not be in the least way or at least bit discouraging that, in any least way or the lesser way of discouraging that, coming in and talking to somebody, uh, why go in and talk to somebody if you don't need to? But if you're that fortunate and this just kind of helps you stay where you need to stay in an adaptive, again, healthy, sort of functionally so way, Great! That's what this is all about. So in the meantime, just watch out for all these Machiavellianism, Machiavellian sort of personalities. And I don't want to be too rude on Niccolo. Who knows? He may not have been so inclined to understand what this would have all turned into and how his name would be associated with such an evil thing. But if we are experiencing a new renaissance of sorts, let's be led by somebody who knows what they're talking about and who really cares about us and who wants to make the world a better place. So, I want to again thank you for joining me today on Word with Dave Clay. And I want to invite you once again, invite you back to our next podcast. And... For the sake of continuity and something you can count on. I want to wish you not only good health, but in this best of ways, good mental health. Until the next podcast.